Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we explore the ways that our dreams can sensitize us to the sacred dimensions of the life both within us and around us. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. Christians often ask why God does not speak to them, as he's believed to have done in former days. When I hear such questions, it always makes me think of the rabbi who was asked how it could be that God often showed himself to people in the olden days, while nowadays nobody ever sees him. The rabbi replied, nowadays there is no longer anybody who can bow low enough. This answer hits the nail on the head. We are so captivated by and entangled in our subjective consciousness that we have forgotten the age-old fact that God speaks chiefly through dreams and visions. So far in this series of episodes on dreams, we've looked at the way that dream experiences can challenge our usual sense of both our consciousness and our identity. And we've begun to confront the resistances we typically feel about taking dreams seriously. I've suggested that dreams can be particularly useful in the development of the symbolic life because they offer a direct encounter with the kind of non-rational experiences that lie at the heart of it, but that are are so often marginalized and, and even excluded in our conventional conceptions about the value and purpose of human life. In episode 19, Dreaming and Reality, I stated that each dream is a doorway to a level of experience in which the ego, that part of us we usually call I, is no longer felt to be at the center of things. This is the essence of the symbolic life. Our usual tendency is to reflect on life in terms of how it affects the I. What does this mean to me? The symbolic life means recognizing that our personal life is embedded within a larger, more universal scope of life. One of the things that dreams do is they take many of the experiences that we attribute to the I 
and present them to our consciousness as so many others. So where we might say, I am angry, our dreams personify that anger as a separate other that confronts us, perhaps as another person pursuing us or as a wild and dangerous animal prowling around our house. In other words, they show us the autonomy of those experiences. They let us know that that anger or whatever experience is being represented, happiness, love, grief, boredom, has its own agency, its own energy, and its own dynamism, all of which are independent of our will. So rather than I am angry, the dream presents the situation as anger is present. Anger is right here. Now, in waking life, we don't have control over the inner lives of the others that we encounter. Spouses, partners, children, pets, wild animals. All we have are more or less effective relationships with those others that in some way, however small, can mitigate or exacerbate the psychological state of the other, but does not control or create their inner state. And of course, this works the other way around as well. The other can have a similar effect on our psychological state, even though they are not the author of it. And the same is true from the Jungian perspective when the other takes the form of those psychological energies that we encounter in ourselves. We don't create or control our inner experiences. Often we react to situations well before we're even conscious of our reactions. And, and the best that we can do is to attempt to establish a healthy relationship to the autonomous energies of the psyche. Now, it's not really such a foreign idea to suggest that much of our psychological activity has this quality of an autonomous other within. We all have had experiences of saying and doing things that we know we shouldn't say or do, or that we wish we could resist. And, and after some such behavior that we regret, we might say something like, I don't know what got into me, or I didn't mean it. We've all met the inner other at one time or another. And of course, it's not just disruptive and upsetting experiences in which this other makes its appearance. Creative inspirations, hunches and intuitions, a sudden and unexpected peace that might settle over us. All these, too, can have the character of autonomy and independence. And this all points to the central insight of depth psychology, 
which is also an insight that's been articulated over and over by creative and sensitive minds, artists, philosophers, mystics, and more throughout the history of thought. And that is that human beings are fundamentally more than they can know about themselves. And this is also what our dreams reveal, that, that there are hidden depths within even the seemingly most personal of our experiences. And this leads Jung at one point to state that all dreams reveal spiritual experiences. The ultimate experience of otherness is that to which we have traditionally and colloquially given the name God. And this brings us back to our opening quote from Jung. We are so captivated by and entangled in our subjective consciousness that we have forgotten the age-old fact that God speaks chiefly through dreams and visions. Now, this leads to something of a delicate question. What is it that Jung means when he talks about God? And to be honest, this question is much too complex for us to explore with any kind of completeness in this podcast. But at the risk of oversimplifying, let me just suggest what I think is the core of how to understand this. When Jung talks about God, he's talking first and foremost about a psychological experience. He's not making any metaphysical assumptions about the reality of God, either for or against. As a psychologist, Jung's attention is on the psychological phenomena that are associated with and that accompany the experience that has always been given the name God. And this understanding is succinctly expressed by Jung's close associate, Marie-Louise von Franz, in a response that she once gave to a, a question about the psychological meaning of God. And she said this, she says, Psychologically, I'm using the word to mean anything which overwhelms us so completely that our genuine reaction is to prostrate ourselves to the floor to venerate it, to fear it. It's that which is fascinating or frightening in a sort of blissful rapture, anything which sweeps a human being completely off his feet. That has always been called God. In other words, from the Jungian standpoint, the word God is a symbol which means, as I've discussed before in this podcast, that, that it's an image that expresses something incommunicable. A symbol is both an expression of and a relationship to something that ultimately can't be known or expressed directly. A psychological understanding of God does not preclude or cancel out a religious understanding of God. It's not the case that if one exists, the other does not. They're not mutually exclusive. But in a sense, what Jung is indicating is that even if we don't have a connection 
to a religious tradition. Even if we haven't worked out what God is or means to us, or we don't have a sense of a relationship to God, the psychological experience goes on regardless. And we might say that what this experience is, is a reorientation of one's relationship to the world and to life. One that is characterized by a sense of an abiding meaningfulness and aliveness to one's life. And the way to this experience is to be able to bow low enough. And as usual, to begin to get a feel for this and not to let this get too heady or academic, it's, it's helpful to turn to symbol and story. So here's the opening sequence of the fairy tale, The Water of Life, which I think speaks to this theme that we're exploring here. The story begins with a king who has three sons. The king is ill and seems to be dying. His sons are approached by an old, mysterious man who tells them, I know a remedy for the king, and that is the water of life. If he drinks of it, he will become well again. But it is hard to find. The eldest son is determined to go in search of it and begs his father to let him go until the king finally consents. And according to the story, the prince thought in his heart, if I bring the water, then I shall be the best beloved of my father and shall inherit the kingdom. So he set out, and when he had ridden forth a little distance, a dwarf stood there in the road who called to him and said, Whither away so fast? You ugly little imp, said the prince very haughtily. What is that to you? And he rode on. But at this offense, the little dwarf grew angry and wished an evil wish upon him. Soon after this, the prince entered a ravine, and the further he rode, the closer the mountains drew together, and at last the road became so narrow that he could not advance a step further. It was impossible either to turn his horse or to dismount from the saddle and he was shut in there, as if in prison. The exact same fate befalls the second son, who also sets out in search of the water of life, and who also encounters the dwarf and treats him rudely. He too gets stuck in the ravine, unable to go forwards or backwards. So fair, haughty people, says the tale. And then it continues. When the second son also failed to return, the youngest begged to be allowed to go forth to fetch the water. And at last, the king was obliged to let him go. When he met the dwarf and the latter asked him whither he was going in such haste, he stopped and explained, I'm seeking the water of life for my father who is sick unto death. Can you help me? 
Do you know then, asked the dwarf, where that is to be found? No, said the prince. As you have spoken to me kindly, and not haughtily like your false brothers, I will give you the information and tell you how you can find the water of life. When we talk about the inner life, just what is it that we're talking about? What is the inner life? Well, from a conventional point of view, whatever it is, is negligible. I mean, it's essentially a nothing, right? I mean, what good is an image in the imagination compared to the world of practical action? Did an image ever build a bridge or a building? Did it ever feed the hungry or cure a disease? Can an image mobilize an army or lead a protest against injustice? But you see, this is, this is just the point, right? Because the answer to all of those questions is yes. Yes. At the root of all action and invention and innovation is an image. Everything created or performed was first conceived by an image in the imagination. What is now proved was once only imagined, wrote William Blake. And so this nothing of the inner life, this negligible image in the imagination, turns out to be profoundly consequential. And it follows from this, of course, that the quality of our images, of the state of our inner life, matters and will have a corresponding effect on the quality of our actions and experiences. The two older brothers in the Water of Life story only have eyes for their own self-aggrandizement. They can't be bothered with the dwarf who, to their eyes, is small, insignificant, and ugly. By rejecting what seems to them unworthy of their time and respect, they end up hopelessly stuck, unable to go forward or back. The youngest brother, on the other hand, is not concerned with his own interests but truly wants to heal the king. In other words, his concern is not for his own benefit, but actually for that of the whole kingdom. Operating from a place of compassion and humility and self-forgetfulness, he gives full and friendly attention to the dwarf and is rewarded with knowledge of how to find the water of life. He pays attention to the seemingly insignificant thing and discovers it to be, in fact, remarkable and full of life-giving potential. A healthy inner life means everything 
but it can seem insignificant. It can often feel like doing nothing, especially when we're giving attention to something so apparently dubious as our dreams. But it's just this nothing, says Jung, that is the voice of God. That is, it's the voice of that in us which transcends our merely personal lives and concerns and connects us to the larger arcs of meaning in our lives. And this sense of the meaningfulness of things, like the healing water of life, does not come through extraordinary and heroic achievements but rather through a humble awareness that there are aspects of life that flow through us, independent of our conscious will. Jungian psychology calls this the unconscious. The religious or wisdom traditions call this God or Tao or Great Spirit. But whatever name we give to these depths, the effect is a relativization of the I, of our subjective consciousness. We are so captivated by and entangled in our subjective consciousness, says Jung, that we have forgotten the age-old fact that God speaks chiefly through dreams and visions. To experience the life-giving waters that lie within our own depths, Jung is saying, we must remember how to bow low enough. And this unconventional act of paying attention to our dreams, to the voice of the unconscious, he's suggesting, is just this kind of bowing low. And the takeaway here is that meaning is experienced when we are able to make a shift from looking at the world in terms of what things mean for me to a recognition of their intrinsic meaningfulness, from seeing them for their utility to appreciating them for their vitality. Instead of seeing the natural world, including other people in it as so many resources for human consumption, we recognize and respond to its inherent sacredness. And the same is true, I would suggest, for dreams, which are, in fact, another aspect of the life of nature, and one that takes place in the world within. Instead of just thinking of dreams as insignificant absurdities or even as important instructions for the ego to mine for the sake of the practical concerns of so-called real life, maybe the first task when it comes to our dream life, to the inner life, and by extension to all of life, is to be reconnected through our dreams to the fact that we are part of a great 
mystery of life in all its prodigious creativity. The theologian Abraham Joshua Heschel talks about this as the shift from what he calls the way of expediency, accumulating information and knowledge in order to dominate life, to the way of wonder, deepening our appreciation of life in order to respond creatively to it. Elsewhere, Heschel exhorts us, let us forever remember that the sense for the sacred is as vital to us as the light of the sun. And it's just this kind of sensitivity for the sacred that our dreams can guide us to. If, in the words of our fairy tale, we approach them kindly and not haughtily, it may be that they will show us where we can find the soul-nourishing water of life. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care.